When I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts. Any of you guys participate in Boy Scouts? Eagle Scouts. Whoa, dude, we got an Eagle Scout in the room. Okay. Now, when I moved up from Cub Scouts to Boy Scouts, you know, I did Cub Scouts and Weeblos and then Boy Scouts. I remember excitedly reading about all the different activities and skills that we'd, we'd be learning about. You know, like you had the little scout manual that had all that stuff in it. It was really cool. And of course that manual showed, you know, the boys hiking and tracking animals and canoeing. They'd be learning photography, doing service projects, cooking hearty meals at camp. I mean, we used to compete at, at Camp Reeves with who had the best, you know, chicken or whatever. Um, Practice first aid, rock climbing, uh, stargazing. <laughs> Got to see Haley's Comet when I was in, in Boy Scouts. That was pretty cool. So all this fun stuff that we, we had the opportunity to learn. And of course, I'm an engineer, and the budding engineer in me took a particular liking to all the cool stuff that you could build with just ropes and branches. You know, there's that section where you're learning knot craft. And Anyway, I mean, there was, we're talking things like bridges. You could build bridges with knots and branches. That was just really cool. And while my troop did some of those activities, what we mostly did was hike. I mean, I like hiking, but I was kind of expecting something a little bit more, right? And about the most we built out of branches and ropes was a tripod to hold the water jug. That was something. And while I did have some amazing experiences during scouting, I mean, I went to Philmont. That's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. Um, you know, it ended up actually in disappointment for me. See, I watched as one of the scouts was awarded his eagle rank. And yet, you know, he'd done all the work. He, he got all the merit badges. He organized the service project and all that stuff. But here's the thing. Observing his behavior at school and at various scouting activities. He didn't embody the ideals that we promised to follow in the scout oath and the scout law. Um, and it was, it was one of those experiences in life where the reality didn't live up to my expectations going in. Now you've probably noticed that uh, there's this cute little bundle of fur back with Jenny and I. Um, and, and I had a very different experience when Jenny introduced me to raising service dogs. See, I knew going in that those dogs made a real difference in people's lives. And I knew it's going to be hard work to, to train them and harder still to send them off to puppy college to help someone. But what I didn't expect was the deep camaraderie among the puppy raisers. See, folks were he very eager to help each other, and not just with dog stuff. I mean, we're talking dog stuff and life stuff. And to be honest, and this is kind of sad, there was more love for neighbor among the puppy raisers than I've seen in some churches. But that was a case where the reality was better than I imagined. Now, last week, as Jason brought forth the word, he reminded us of the concept that in Scripture, some things are peculiar, right? That's they're meant for a specific people at a specific time. And other things are perpetual. These are truths, of course, that reflect God's moral laws, and they're for all people at all times. 
This week, we're going to start to delve into the specific laws that Moses has been hinting at, right, all through these 11 chapters. We're we're now finally in chapter 12. And as we do that, um, maybe you're like me. You, You find that having those specific instructions is actually helpful. See, I kind of have a hard time extrapolating from what, you know, just love the Lord your God. What does that look like in day-to-day life, you know? For me, I know it has, it's very helpful to have something a little more substantial to go on. And our first set of laws has to do with idols. You know, given the whole golden calf incident that we talked about a few weeks ago, um, it's not surprising that specific laws about idols would be at the top of the list, right? And it makes even more sense considering that the first two of the Ten Commandments read like this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, as we read about the specific laws regarding what to do about idols in the Promised Land, it should be apparent that the details of the laws are peculiar to the people of Israel at that time and that place. However, as we look deeper, we'll see that the underlying perpetual truths are helpful for us when our hearts are tempted, when they're tempted to go after other gods that you have not known. But before we read the passage, let's ask the God that we do know to open our hearts and our minds so that we can better understand his. Let's pray. Father God, we admit to you this morning that we are prone to following idols, following the shiny object that looks better, that looks like it's going to bring good things. But you are the good thing. You love us more than we can appreciate. And I hope we grasp that even more this morning. So please open our hearts and minds to your word. Let it change us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 12. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, And the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice 
you and your households in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God, the Lord your God, has blessed you. Before we get into the details of this passage, let's take a look at it from the 50,000 foot level, shall we? There's a high level pattern here that emerges when you do that. And the pattern goes something like this. Don't do that. Do this. And here's why. See, our tendency when we're humans and when we're given commands to not do something is to rebel against that order. You remember that whole, you know, eat any fruit except this one business, right? See, it registers an affront, as an affront to our personal freedom and our personal sovereignty, even if we don't recognize it as such. We can get offended even if that command is helpful to us and in our best interest. That urge to rebel can be moderated if a positive alternative is presented. Further moderation can be achieved if reasons are presented explaining the situation. Think of a conversation you might have with a child if you're trying to teach them to cook some tasty, tasty bacon. Don't grab the bacon directly out of the frying pan. Here, use these tongs. If you grab the bacon with your fingers, the hot bacon grease is going to burn them and it's going to hurt really badly. Don't do this. Do this. Here's why. In life, we're not always given the positive alternative or the reasons behind an instruction. But God, in his kindness, is doing just that for the people of Israel. And if we're paying attention this morning, for us as well. And speaking of paying attention, let's descend down to the 10,000 foot level here. We're going to get some perspective on what the world was like in the Middle East at this point in history. We're talking the late Bronze Age for you history buffs. To one extent or another, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and the Egyptians were kind of the major players on the geopolitical front. But of more immediate interest to the Israelites were the Hittites, the Canaanites, right? We hear about them all the time in Scripture. The Girgashites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. So, see, these seven people groups were the primary folks occupying the Promised Land. And a particular importance to our passage today is that these various people groups worshipped a whole bunch of gods. It's not unlike the Egyptians, right? Whom the Israelites had been in close contact with for many generations prior to the Exodus. And consider what the Israelites who lived in Egypt would have experienced. Now first, they'd been slaves in Egypt, right? So they would have been acquainted with being treated as less than human. And second, they would have observed that the Egyptians were comparatively prosperous. I mean, you're in slavery, right? You don't have much. Here are the Egyptians over here with all this stuff. And they would have, of course, observed various Egyptian religious activities and constructions, all the big temples and things that you find in Egypt even today. And they were dedicated to a multitude of gods. Now, of course, the original 12 Jewish patriarchs 
had migrated to Egypt from the land of the Canaanites. And having wandered near that region for some 40 years, they would have also encountered, encountered Canaanite religious practices as well, which would have included wholesome activities, though, like child sacrifice, right? That's all wholesome and good. And of course, lesser activities like bringing food and drink offerings to various shrines and temples, you know, containing sculpted images of the associated gods, you know, the god for the harvest or the god for wealth and prosperity or whatever. And they would have also been exposed to other ceremonial activities associated with these religions meant to stir emotions and fulfill our created need to worship, but not in the way God intended us to worship when he created us. Now, I mentioned this exposure to a variety of religious practices because the Israelites had already shown themselves to be fickle, meaning they were primed to go after false gods. And having this in mind should help us to make more sense out of the laws that God set forth for them. And with that, let's take a closer look at the passage. So, first off, we have, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. As Jason brought forth from the word last week, Moses is going to a lot of trouble repeating himself in this book. So yes, that means it's important. But also consider that these instructions would have been delivered as a really, really, really long speech. It would have been super easy for folks to tune out, right? I mean, I'm going to speak here maybe 35 minutes this morning. I'm sure I'm going to lose a few of you. It's okay. I don't mind. I can take it. But this sort of re- repetition that the, about, of these important thoughts makes sure that if somebody does tune out over the course of Moses speaking for two, three, four, eight, twelve hours, um, right? Somebody's going to hear these important truths at some point during the course of the speech. And Moses is again emphasizing that the land is a gift from God to the people. If you remember from chapter 9, God specifically called the Israel, Israelites out by warning them against taking credit for the conquest of the promised land. And because they had proven to have very short memories, the reminder is that these rules were to be followed going forward, right? We're starting this whole section of rules. The rules weren't to be forgotten and neglected in a few months or a few years. These were the specific ways that the people of Israel could demonstrate their love for God. Now, earlier I mentioned the pattern of don't do that, do this, and here's why. Well, we're going to now encounter this first section as a don't do that disguised as a do this. Here we go. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. See, one of the dangers of the Israelites having been exposed to so many other religions is something we call syncretism. And that's where you combine aspects of several new religion, or several religions into a new or altered religion. That happened a lot in the ancient Near East as there are noticeable similarities in Egyptian, Greek, and Roman religious practices. 
So the emphatic command here, folks, is to destroy the prolific reminders of the native religions which were scattered throughout the countryside in the promised land. If we look at the Canaanite religious practices, altars to their various gods were often set up on high places, such as hills and mountaintops, of course. And fertility rites were performed under trees. So while the command is to proactively destroy those things, it's another way of saying, don't worship other gods. Let's continue in the passage. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You see, what he's talking about are various places of worship there, that, and it would include you know, an altar for offering sacrifices. In some cases, these religious sites had a stone pillar or a wooden pole uh, you know, set up as part of that area. Sometimes, sometimes it was simply a tree. And that stuff, when you had the wooden pole set up to the, the, the ashram we're talking about, that's because the chief female goddess of the Canaanites was Asherah. What God is essentially saying here is that to stay pure, there would be no taking of souvenirs or reuse of these existing facilities. All of it had to go. Moses now starts to give the do this part. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. See, if the people of Israel were to be set aside as God's holy and chosen ones, then their religious practices, as well as their hearts, should look different. While the Canaanites had a series of gods essentially overseeing some aspect of life that were known throughout the region, there were still local differences. And this shouldn't be too surprising. Some weeks ago, I postulated that religions with a multitude of gods were really just expressions of those things that people in their fallen state desired more than the one true God. Whether that was power or wealth or sexual conquest or any number of other things, there was a God for that. And the God which hang out, hung out in your personal shrine or at your personal worship site was a God you could control. Listen to more of Deuteronomy. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. See, rather than having people worshiping random gods in ways that were ultimately about pleasing themselves, the one true God said, nope. One of the ways you are to be set apart, to be distinguished from everyone else, is that you will worship me in one place in specific ways. Continuing on in scripture, there you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Now, in my personal Bible study of late, I've been working my way through Leviticus. Anybody read the whole thing? Okay, good. 
I tell you, if you want to look for very specific instructions on how to worship God, at least Old Covenant style, that's the place to go. There are instructions for what animals are required for what sin. Uh, There are instructions on how you are to kill that animal, uh, what you're to do with various animal parts. Uh, um, It's all there literally in gory detail. (laughs) But what this does is it takes away the human control of worship. And something interesting happens when you do that, when you start to worship God in spirit and in truth. And this is the here's why part. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Did you see that? Joy comes from this. Remember last week how Jason brought forth from the word that when we bless God and glorify him in how we live, somehow we end up getting blessed as well. And let's think about those religious practices of the Canaanites again. And really, this is common to most religions. You get stuck in this endless cycle of trying to earn favor. Your joy ends up being linked to your limited, get that, limited ability to earn it. In other words, you get brief fleeting moments of happiness at best, but no lasting joy. Remember a few weeks ago also how Josh picked up on how prolific is the use of the phrase, the Lord your God in Deuteronomy. We see it in this passage as well. And what I hope we see is is not a God that's that's a mere reflection of our desires, but a God who desires us. Isn't that incredible? And while we can think of the Lord your God applying, of course, to all of God's people, it also applies to each of us personally. Eric, he's the Lord your God. Charlene, he's the Lord your God. Jason, he's the Lord your God. What God is doing here is helping his people to know him. He's defined it in a covenantal relationship. And he's detailing it with these statutes and rules. That'll be hugely important as the Israelites encounter more directly the religious practices of the people occupying the promised land. They'll individually and collectively be faced with a choice to worship the God they know or the gods they don't know. That's a choice we face as well. God has given us his word, all of this, all of this, so that we can know him even more fully than the Israelites did. He sent his son to take the penalty of our sins on himself to end that cycle of trying and failing to earn salvation. He's given us his Holy Spirit in each of our hearts to help us grow. He's given us prayer so we can enter into the very presence of God without having to be in a specific location on the earth. 
He's given all this and more. And we still go after those idols. Why do we do that? It's one of the questions I asked as I was preparing this. Perhaps it's because we look at our lives and and see things that seem to be lacking. Though evidences of God are all around us, we don't recognize them. And we don't recognize them mostly because we don't stop and take the time to recognize them. See, the problems we face, the things that are lacking, those are easy to spot, right? They scream at us every day. The evidences of God are often still and quiet and humble and gentle and lowly. It's really appropriate that Mike (laughs) brought forth the passage he did this morning because without knowing it, it's right here at this point in my sermon. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And yet we look for tangible things that seem to be fulfilling on the outside. It's like my story about scouting, right? I derived some benefit from it, but was ultimately disappointed. And when we're talking about things, it helps to to keep in mind that God's instructions to the Israelites came from his heart of love for them. He knew their tendency to be distracted by the thing that looks good on the outside. It's new and it's interesting and it seems beneficial. But the reality is they didn't know the destruction and pain that, that awaited them with the gods they didn't know. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, you can see just how bad that destruction and pain would and could get. But see, God had revealed himself to them in ways that he had not done to other pe- for any other people. And yet the draw was toward those things that seemed to provide good things now instead of holding out for the best thing And of course, the draw for us today is the same. To fill the vacuum of what seems to be lacking in our lives. But a funny thing happens when we put our focus on God. We find the antidote to the lacking. We find that we already have a lot. In fact, if we have Christ, we have everything we need. Listen to 2 Peter His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's the truth of how blessing God and being, and in turn being blessed by God, that it shows up again here, see? And the realization that all we do have comes from the knowledge of him, who he is, what he's done for us, and what he's given to us. As I was writing this, it brought my my mind back to a song we sang recently. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Behold his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hmm. So God's instructions were to destroy anything that even remotely smelled of idolatry, right? The altars, the carved images, the pillars, all that stuff. His instructions to us are essentially the same because those things take our eyes off of all that we have in Jesus. Now, you come over to my house, I've got a power pole in my backyard, right? It's not an ashram. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things in my heart that could easily displace God as the foremost object of my affection. What is implicit in God's command to destroy all those carved images and altars and pillars is the need to seek those things out so they can be dealt with. Now, while we still see forms of actual idol worship practice today, Anybody who's driven up to DIA has probably seen an idol off to the side of the freeway. Um, (laughs) The thing is, most of the idols that we worship are evidenced by where we focus our time, our talent, and our treasure. They can even be seemingly good things, right? We can be an active member in a church, participating in all kinds of of church activities, and still not do it with hearts intent on blessing God. Hearts that really don't love God or our neighbor. The point is we need to be actively evaluating our hearts with the help of the Holy Spirit and in the light of Scripture to consider if something is rising up to become an idol. And this isn't just a one and done thing, okay? It's, you know, like it's, we don't have a set number of idols in our, in our hearts that once we get them all out, we're good, right? It's not how it works. If you remember God's instructions, they were to follow these rules all the days that you live on the earth. See, as seasons change in our lives, new idols are liable to rise up. Okay, back to when I was a kid, right? I wanted the G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, right? You know, you get the Sears catalog with all the Christmas toys and right there on the front, G.I. Joe aircraft. That was really cool. And then in high school, right? A little bit older, I wanted a girlfriend, right? You know, everybody else had a girlfriend. I thought that'd be pretty cool. And I also wanted to get into a good college, right? You know, it's a good thing to do. And college... I was looking forward to, to getting a good job and, and finding a wife, right? That's a good thing. As a husband, I wanted a family. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But they had the potential to steal my affections from God if I focused on them too much or if they caused me to compromise my character in pursuit of them. Now, as, as we go through this, please, please don't hear this in a spirit of, of condemnation or as a, as a burden. You see, God's laws aren't meant to deprive us of good things. They're meant to help us keep focused on the best thing, God himself. See, those idols we, we go after, I hope you've gotten the sense throughout our, our talk this morning, they only look good. 
from the outside. Our ultimate joy and our ultimate good comes from loving and serving God. And that is what his laws are meant to focus us on. That's why he gives us the don't do that, do this, and here's why. Now remember something else here. God just didn't tell them to to get rid of the land of all the traces of idol worship. See, that would have just left a vacuum, a vacuum for some other pagan religion to fill. This is because we were made to worship. And we will find one thing or another to worship unless, unless Christ restores our hearts to rightly worship God. Folks, that's why we're vulnerable to idolatry. And knowing this about his creation, God directed the Israelites to worship him in specific ways. And even under the system of sacrifices and festivals that delineated Jewish worship, we still see that personal connection to God. If we go back to Leviticus, we see that the person who brought those sacrifices actually participated with the priest in the ritual. They experienced firsthand that their sin led to death. Now, as much as I enjoy tasty, tasty bacon, I'm glad I don't have to be in the process of its production, okay? (laughs) I'm still going to eat it, but I'm glad I don't have to get it from point A to point B. And I'm doubly glad that under the new covenant, right, that we live under, under Christ, we don't have to deal with that whole system of sacrifices. Yet it's interesting how part of the prescribed worship involved both bringing the sacrifice and eating, eating before the Lord. See, the realization of the consequences of sin and then the joy, right? We talked about joy earlier. The joy that the debt has been paid as expressed in a celebratory meal. That's worship in spirit and truth. We still see both the sacrifice and eating before the Lord reflected in communion, the bread and the cup. So under both the old covenant and the new covenant, God has been kind to give us specific ways in which we can express our love towards him. And again, referring to what Jason brought forth last week, this perpetuates that cycle of blessing as we bless him and are in turn blessed by him. In other words, our joy will increase. And remember that worship isn't just about singing the songs on Sunday or or the Sunday gathering. It encompasses all aspects of our lives. So there are lots of opportunities for our joy to increase. Tune in next week as Bill speaks to this topic in more detail. But really, it's, it's a lot like that contrast between my experiences in scouting and in puppy raising. Again, but one looked good on the outside. The other was good and got better the more you experienced it. So if we, if we try to condense everything we've been talking about this morning, using that pattern of don't do that, do this, and here's why, it's pretty simple. Don't worship idols. Seek them out regularly and be rid of them. But do 
worship God in spirit and truth as his word instructs us to do. And if you do these things, your joy, your joy will increase. If I were to give you something memorable to take home from this sermon, I think it would be these words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Simple. Now, I'm not here to evaluate your heart this morning. That's something for you and the Holy Spirit to work through. But I would encourage each of us to heed these instructions and take honest stock of your heart from time to time. He's the Lord your God. He loves you personally. He's asked you to do this as a way of showing your love in return. And in so doing, your joy will increase. May that love give you courage to confront and destroy your idols and praise him all the more in their destruction. Let's pray. Father God, it's so easy for all of us to to go after the shiny thing, the new thing, the thing that looks good on the outside. But Lord, we have you, our Lord and Savior, who loves us more than we can fathom. Help us to appreciate that more and more each day as we see in your word, your love for your people, your love for us individually. As we look to the world around us and see your, the joy and the beauty that you imbued it when you created it. And may all these things point us to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.